As public theologians, both Duran and I believe that everything about us says something about God and something about the world. The late theologian James Cone phrased it like this, theology is political language. We're here to figure out what that means here and now. Welcome to episode nine of Public Theologians. I am Casey Hobbs, and with me is Duran Hill. Duran, how are you doing today? Well, the White Sox are in the playoffs. The Bears are three and old. All is good in the world, Casey. Oh, good. Well, I guess that concludes our podcast then. <laughs> <laughs> the two most important uh pieces on on my notes they're done so good uh the other piece of news and we won't linger too much on this but there was some news about donald trump's taxes that came out um i think late last night so we're recording this on monday um so yeah it's the big news on twitter dran do you have like a 30 second take on that I am shocked. I cannot believe it. Uh, that, I mean, I think this is going to change the election. Um, you know, he's going to lose the uh, conservative evangelical vote. Um, th this changes everything. Um, Republicans aren't going to ram through a Supreme Court justice yep. before election day. I mean, everything changed. Everything, everything changed. I yeah. actually, I read a, um, I'll, I'll try to find it and post it in the notes, but there's an AP article that I was reading right before we got, uh, got together today. And the gist of that article was exactly that, that, hey, this, you, you just never know, this could just change everything. And, uh, you know, it really gives the Democrats a line of, def of offense and uh, heavily quoted, actually, you'll appreciate this, Duran, heavily quoted in that article um, and I, I don't know the guy's name offhand, but was the um, campaign director for Marco Rubio in 2016. And we all remember what a successful campaign um, Marco Rubio ran in 2016. So this strategist was just um, talking about how he's certain that this is going to change everything. Yeah, I predict this will have absolutely no impact <laughs> on the presidential election. Like, did we not know about his shady business practices? Come on. I mean, yeah. we had the we had the NBC video the week before the election last year. Folks are are dug in. You know, I don't know. Maybe there is this uh, unicorn suburban <laughs> a woman that's you know reading his taxes and she's gonna change her mind. But um, I'm pretty sure ninety. 5% of the country is not changing anything based on taxes. Yeah. And I think, uh, so I wanted to, to hit uh, also the debates tomorrow night, wondering if you were going to uh, spend your time watching the debate uh, between Trump and Biden. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think if you're looking for an offensive line of attack, you know, perhaps the uh, horrific bungling of the um, coronavirus this year has been could be possibly something you know 200,000 people have died the economy is in the toilet 
um, you know, many, many, many millions of people are out of work. Um, and um, so, I don't know, maybe that could be a line of, of offense that actually would affect like the 10 people out there that are undecided. All right, here's my bold prediction. Okay, let's hear it. First debate. The things that are said in the debate will have zero impact on the general election. The, I mean, the, the only reason I'm watching this debate is, is for entertainment value. That's, let me just say that. But I will say, you know, I think how people look in the debate, you know, what, are they projecting confidence? I think that's going to be more of the media, uh, you know, uh, uh, catchphrases and things like that are, are, are what's going to be reported and what people are going to see. But uh, the, the couple of uh, nerds um, that will be watching the debate with me, yeah, we, we, we're, we're just there for entertainment. It's, this, there's not going to be any, any big substance, I, I think, come out of this debate. Although Trump did have this platinum plan for Black Americans come out this past weekend. Uh, so oh, who I knows? Didn't, I didn't see the details of that. Does it look good, Turan? Oh, convinced? bigly good. It is <laughs> bigly good. huge. Now, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a halfway decent attempt to siphon off some, some African-American votes. Um, you know, a big question for a lot of things in the plan is, like, why, why haven't you tried to work on any of these things in your first term? So there's that. I will say, though, you know, with the First Step Act, and, he, you know, he's promising to build on that, that was one thing that uh, I know um, some uh, minority, uh, minoritized communities were really, you know, happy about one thing that he has done, uh, and that is with uh, kind of uh, prisons and, and some of those guidelines. So I will give him that. He says he's going to build on that. He did something in his first term. Hey, could be. So, you know, you know those two or three African-American voters that are on the fence, you know, hey, maybe <laughs> this does this move the needle. But, like, seriously, I, I feel like I don't know anybody that I've talked to who is on the fence um about trump and, and nobody's even talking about biden it is trump or pro trump or con trump yeah so um i i think most folks are, are dug in where they are yeah i think you're right about that and again from somebody who very much does not like joe biden from the left um yeah it's <laughs> i know you're shocked duran i see i see you falling out uh, on the other side of the screen there, but uh, yeah, it's it's almost a moot point um, who is running against Trump if you if you you know are kind of on the left. Um, it's frustrating um, to me that um, that we can't make bold arguments against Trump, like hey, everybody needs to have health care, um, like hey we should stop all foreign wars. Um, but in, you know, in Biden's case, uh, he has repeatedly spoken out against universal health care. He has um, for a long time been very hawkish um, on foreign policy 
um, including the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war. And um, yeah, there's just a string of um, very right wing um, foreign and domestic policies that he represents. And um, yeah, I think uh, the patron saint of this podcast, Jurian, you can disagree, but uh, Cornell West came out uh, a few weeks ago and said that this is a vote between a disaster and a catastrophe. Um, so I think, <laughs> I think that's where I'm at. <laughs> I'm going to vote for the disaster and uh, hope that, that, that uh, there can be enough pressure on Biden to do some good things. Um, but fine, closing thoughts on that, Duran. Well, I appreciate you sharing kind of where you are on that. And I, I, <laughs> I, love, so... I love that you've, uh, you know, I, I was worried about uh, us, deep, uh, you know, sticking our toe in the politics, but sounds like a ringing endorsement from uh, Casey Hobbs on Joe Biden. So that's uh, as ringing as I can. As I can. <laughs> <laughs> Casey for Biden, 2020. Hmm. Uh, He's no, uh, yeah. better than the alternative, the one alternative that we have. Literally, that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I definitely think, um, yeah, th this is election. You know, we don't know who's who's gonna do what. You know, um, but uh, yeah, I think most folks, you you've got to have your mind made up by now, or you've got to probably not gonna be voting anyway. So I don't know. Yeah, I think that's a safe bet. Um, okay, so moving along. Um, this past Wednesday, um, we had the, the um, verdict from the um, grand jury trial um, for the Breonna Taylor um, killers, um, the police that, uh, three police that went in and shot up uh, Breonna Taylor's apartment. And she was, we found out specifically this past week, um, she was actually um, laying down when one of the bullets hit her. Um, so she was um, probably quite literally asleep. Um, and uh, so there was a grand jury trial that lasted, what, Duran, two weeks. Um, usually those things last about 10 minutes, <laughs> um, but it lasted a couple weeks. And um, lo and behold, there's, they found um, that they would not try the officers for anything outside of shooting up somebody else's um, walls in the meantime. Um, you know, I, I think this, this falls in, in line with, with a long string um, from Eric Garner and Mike Brown, you know, the, these kind of super high profile cases that we've had in the last several years um, where the case dies at the grand jury and I kind of want to talk about that a little bit with you today, Duran. Um, but your your thoughts um, and kind of how you've been processing this news. You know, based on the statements coming from police, um, from her boyfriend that was with her uh, at, at the time of her her death, um, you know there were a lot of things that were conflicting. Uh, and so I, I kind of thought that we might get some type of mixed ruling like this. 
Um, the biggest thing I think that, um, that, that, that really bothers me about this case is the, the, the time it took to get to the grand jury and then just the lack of transparency about the process, you know. And so, you know, we still don't, I, I, I think, know quite, uh, and, and maybe it was laid out, and, but I just couldn't find it, which bullet killed, you know, whose who's, uh, bullet killed uh, um, Brianna and, you know, and, and some of these, these things uh, where, it, again, I, I think there was just a lot of things that we still don't know about what happened, which we would, we would like to have um, information from police. But this whole thing has been just shady from the get-go, from this kind of hastily put together task force, um, to this, you know, the, the, the no knock, but we're still going to knock, but nobody heard it, uh, warrant. Um, and, and then there's the whole issue of, um, body cameras for certain types of, I guess, um, uh, police activity in Kentucky, body cameras are not required. And so, you know, it, it, it just, it, there's, there's, there's just a lot go there you know um you know i have to be honest i don't have a ton of faith uh in the criminal justice system so um you know i i don't know maybe maybe i'm a pessimist maybe i'm a realist who knows depending on the day but i i didn't put a whole lot of hope in 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 any type of a verdict uh, in that way. And so um, I do think this, this whole, you know, John Wayne uh, police officer who was just, I mean, like, you just can't, this is, it's crazy that, that these things are, are happening, you know, in, in 2020. And so I, I do think it does point, though, um, back to the larger conversation of like, these are systemic things. They, there's so many breakdowns that are happening. Um, and, and so we need to see change. So I'm, I'm glad to see that people are, are, are calling for um, the end of these no-not warrants. I'll be, you know, again, though, I'm not super optimistic that that's going to actually happen. Uh, but, but I think, uh, you know, the conversation needs to be had and we need to look at a lot of these things and how... I think too the, and, and I think this is what a lot of people miss, particularly those who want to jump straight to, well, what about black on black crime and all these other, you know, kind of distractions. And, you know, when you have an encounter with police, it is so um, incredibly uh, slanted, that encounter, you know, uh, it's biased in, in one way. And, there are so many different ways where this thing can go left, um, but the police have so many escape routes anyway. But yeah, so I think that's my, my biggest concern is citizens need to have, they need to come to an encounter with police uh, somewhat on equal footing, you know. Um, I shouldn't have to do everything right and a police officer has to do everything wrong for them to be guilty of a crime against me. You know what I mean? And so th those are things that, that, that I've been thinking about. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's absolutely right. 
Um, and, and I think that speaks a bit to kind of this, this really, again, troubling um, response that, that you see out there, which is, you know, looking for a perfect victim, you know, um, and I think <laughs> Brianna Taylor really represents a perfect victim. She's sleeping in her apartment. Um, and, you know, just to kind of put a couple more things out there factually, you know, her, the person that they were looking for, they already had served a warrant on. So there's, they fouled up and even showing up to the apartment in the first place. Um, Kenneth Walker, the boyfriend, um, they've been saying the entire time that he, um, that he shot first and that there was some, that, you know, these three innocent policemen that are in plain clothes shooting up his apartment um, are somehow uh, now innocent in the matter. Um, and now kind of we're starting to find out more and more this past weekend, um, there was Vice News released um, some, some information. We can post it there as well um, in the show notes, but uh, that kind of show that there's not really conclusive evidence that, um, that Kenneth Walker hit any of the officers. Um, in fact, there's kind of just as much evidence um, pointing to that it might have been friendly fire, that they were just so irresponsibly shooting into the apartment that they hit each other, um, the police hit each other. So, you know, there's these super troubling um, contradictions that we're finding out after the fact. And again, um, I think this is, and this is why I bring up the Eric Garner case and the Mike Brown case, um, you know, they, they have an obvious um, similarity um, in their kind of profile in the, the movements that they've sparked. Um, but also this um, similarity of the grand jury um, is again, to obtain um, a, a grand jury verdict um, is, is relatively simple, I think. Um, if you read any lawyer talking about that, um, getting, getting a conviction from the grand jury is almost kind of like a rubber stamp to go ahead and proceed with the actual trial. So, you, so there's not cross-examination, there's not any of that stuff, it's just the prosecutor says, here is my case, and, and it looks like there's enough um, to, go to, to go to trial. Um, so in this case, it really shouldn't have taken that long. You know, three people show up. There, there's 11 people that went on record as saying that they did not hear the police announce themselves, and it is a no-knock warrant. So there's even an, a kind of an implicit admission there that they did not intend to announce themselves. But then, you know, the shooting starts and, and, you know, you have a 911 call of Kenneth Walker actually calling the police and saying, there's people breaking into my house, um, please help. So it's very clear that, that there's enough evidence pointing in the direction of they really um, just came in shooting um, to, uh, you know, to bring that to trial. So this isn't even like a jury of their peers. This isn't... Um, and again, it's the same thing with the Eric Garner case. You had the prosecution essentially bringing up 
every single piece of evidence that they could possibly find for or against, mainly against their own case, which never happens. Um, it only happens when it kind of makes a sham of the whole process. This lends a lot of credence to really the fact that there needs to be serious overhauls to, to our system, uh, our criminal system, you know, starting with the police and the courts and, and to even how we do criminal justice because this is not right. <laughs> this is also an extrajudicial killing. It's amazing to me that this is talked about a lot less is that there, if there was a problem with Kenneth Walker or with any of these folks, which there was not a legal issue with any of them, that needs to be decided by the courts. That doesn't need to be decided by three, as you said, John Wayne cowboys busting in and shooting. But sadly, that's what we're looking at. And yeah, and you know, and again, those are types of things, like you're saying about the ballistics. That I think there should have been more transparency on. And I know the governor has called for the AG to release the grand jury, um, you know, materials. But but definitely, um, in, any prosecutor can get an indictment. Uh, if, if they want to get one. And so I, I think this, this, that, that is always interesting uh, when, when folks go to the grand jury and don't get an indictment. Um, either they, they brought shoddy work or didn't think it was worthy of bringing the grand jury in in the first place. Uh, and so, you know, are you using them as a, as a political out potentially, uh, those type of things. But yeah, I, I think there are just, there's so many things here and, yeah, you know, this this happened in March, and the other thing is like, what if there wasn't this public public outcry and yeah. pressure, and the WNBA having say her name? You know, what if there wasn't that? Then like, you know, would we even hear about some of these things? And, and so it, it's very troubling um, as we look at this. It, it'll be interesting to see how. How this how this goes, but um, here we are in September, um, and, and we've just now kind of getting specifics. Uh, but still, things are, are are not not being uh, being told. So yeah, very disturbing. Yeah, yeah, and the, I think the contradictions in all of the, the information that we're getting from, like you said, from the Kentucky Attorney General, um, and you know, all, all these other things are really, that's distressing, very distressing. It does make me think too, and we've talked a bit about violence from protesters and, and you know, whether these, whether this moment, all of the protesting and, um, and or setting buildings on fire or um, whatever instance of sort of what you might call rioting happen. Um, but it does remind me particularly in this case, um, and, and really in all the cases this summer, whether it's uh, Jacob Blake or uh, George Floyd or any of these, is a James Cone quote that essentially says, those that are indicting rioters for violence fail to see the fact that the response that they are giving is to violence. 
Um, so the question is not, do we engage in violence as, as a response, but how do, we, how do we respond to the violence there? I think that's a question that is not really dealt with in, these, in this kind of hysteria around, oh, there's buildings on fire, there's, and there has been, there's been some injuries to police, um, there's been way more injuries to protesters than there's been to police, just to be clear. Um, but the kind of hand-wringing about that, I think, fails to see that there is, by design, not justice for folks like Breonna Taylor. I think that's the question that needs to be dealt with before you can really deal with the nature of the protests. So I'm going to push back a little bit on that, Casey, because, I mean, I, I would say definitely if, if you're prioritizing uh, those, I don't I see where you're coming from. But I, I do, though, think we do have to ask, like, this violence, even in reaction to police violence and, and other things that are happening, is that is that helping or create an environment for human flourishing? I mean, like, at what point does this, I mean, are we just like straight up, you know, eye for an eye? You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, so I, I do think particularly, you know, you know, people of faith, Christian folks need to ask and yes, we can say that this violence is a response to other violence, but, but I don't think, I think we gotta be careful about either condoning that violence or burying our head and saying, it's like, well, I mean, you know, they have righteous indignation on their side. So, you know, what I mean, like, I, for me, I, I do have a have have some issue with that. What, what are your thoughts, Casey? Yeah, and I mean, I think I, I'm I'm with you in that sense too. I, I, I'm not I'm not a proponent of violence in any form. I'm very much pacifist <laughs> in small things and in large things. But yeah, I'm also aware of and, uh, you know, kind of sympathetic to the fact that, um, you know, you talk about like, go back to the Civil Rights Act in 1967. Uh, that came about after the assassination of Dr. King. Um, and then there was, there was like a full summer of riots. Um, there were, that they were recorded as anyways, they were uprisings. Um, and there, was there some violence going on? Absolutely. But we saw like generational legislative change after that. So I think, I think you look back to any, any major governmental change um, that's happened in the United States of America or anywhere really around the world, there, is, there are, have been so many moments leading up to this point in American history and recent American history that have been completely ignored. You know, you even look back, we're both sports junkies. So you look back to Colin Kaepernick several years back, starting to take the knee and there was massive response to that, that, you know, we stand for the flag and we kneel to the cross or something, you know, absurd like that. But these are calls to, peacefully engage in these in solutions that were not only ignored, but he was vilified and now he doesn't have a job. <laughs> mm 
those are significant moments that have been ignored that are forms of peaceful protests. Um, absolutely. And so, yeah, so, you know, you get, I know that especially right now, the, again, the Martin Luther King quote from the, but the from the Birmingham prison uh, jail is maybe a little bit overquoted, but you know, the um, rioting is the voice of the unheard. Um, I think you can really trace that back in these last few years. There's been a lot of peaceful protests and I, I wish that all protests was peaceful. And I, I think that it, I think that there is a critique to be made. Personally, I, d I don't think that it's a good idea to engage in, in violent forms of protest. But also I think that there needs to be a lot of nuance and understanding and context given before we just ascribe all of what we see right now to unruly people. Yeah, and, and I would tend to agree with you on that. You know, I, I think you know, one thing about King's quote, I think is it was descriptive and not prescriptive, you know. Absolutely was, yeah. So that, that's one thing I'll point out. But, you know, my, my only concern is, particularly among, you know, uh, Christian communities, that, that we don't delve into this ends justify the means type of uh, ethic where, you know, hey, Hey, we we you know folks folks uh, kicked in doors and set fires in Birmingham and the Confederate uh, memorials down. So you know we do what it takes. You know what I mean that sort of thing. And so that that is one thing I think we, we have to be be careful on uh, not to lose our witness in in, in that sense. But uh, I I do agree that you know we we can allow those type of what about arguments to distract from the bigger picture of, of what's really happening? Yeah. Okay, so Duran, to um, move the conversation uh, <laughs> and, uh, and kind of keep on the theme of the ends justifying the means. Of course, we talked uh, quickly last week about the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, and we kind of, we spoke to the upcoming changes uh, on the Supreme Court. And the reason I say the ends justify the means, of course, in 2000, early 2016, um, we had a, another justice, and I'm, I'm forgetting even which one right now, but that, uh, that died and Barack Into Obama. Yeah, Scalia, that's right. Um, which ties right back into the new nomination. Um, so Scalia uh, dies at the beginning of 2016 and Obama nominates Merrick Garland, which is not a super exciting pick in the first place, but part of the design was that um, he should have been really easy to confirm. And there was nine months to do that before the election. And um, of course, we all remember our, our good um, patron, uh, second patron saint, maybe of this podcast, is a uh, uh, Mitch McConnell. Um, basically, <laughs> shut that down um, and said, you know, let the American people choose the next Supreme Court justice um, because they'd be nominated by the new president. So, fast forward to to now. Um, there, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies with what under fifty days left before the election and. 
it's weird. I don't. I haven't heard Mitch McConnell make that argument again. Have you heard him make the revive his own he argument? Said, he, not that argument. He's got a oh, new. He's got a new there, one. Dre, tell me about the new one. So here's his new argument: is well, it's different now because the same party controls both the Senate and the White House. Oh, which okay. is not at all what he argued the first time. Which you know. You know, this, this, it really kind of sticks, you know, my crawl a little bit. But, you know, I think he had to, had the, the, the legal right to do what he did. I would have just, I mean, he should just say, hey, I'm doing it because I can. And what y'all going to do about it? You know what I mean? But Which is this whole pretense. Pre and here's the thing there's no ambiguity uh, about like what he, he was saying and those that were with him, uh, Lindsey Graham and others, Grassley. Uh, Men of high upstanding character. High esteem. <laughs> um, but I, I, I do think though this is a, I think this is kind of like the, 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 um, the nuclear option. I think this is going to be a watershed moment for the Senate and beginning with, with Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell and now uh, Mitch has got uh, Schumer on the other side. I, th we've got this kind of Senate Cold War going on, and it, it's just going to be a battle of attrition where we've gone past the, the filibuster is almost dead. It probably will be soon. <sighs> you know, what are folks going to react to this? But it's it just, yeah, I, I just can't believe uh, – the straight up hypocrisy, you know, like if there was like, leave yourself some room, you know what I mean? But they just like, you know what, psych. Yeah, no, it's it's a total setting aside of pretense, which is, it would be a bit more refreshing if you just said, you know what, I am, my ideology is power and I will now see, uh, seize power in this way because I seized it literally in the opposite way with less of an argument in my on my side four years ago but now I care about power so that's I almost kind of want to push into like what I'm hearing and and what is I think a very uh, easy case to make that this is hypocrisy I almost think that a better word for it is just it's just raw power you know I, I think i think this falls right in line with what he believes and even kind of going back to our guest last week dr kristen cobez dumay um you know her her whole point of kind of this uh, masculine christianity mixed with kind of a right-wing politics where the one sort of shapes the other I think this is why, and again, going back to our our original conversation about Trump's taxes, um, I, I, that's why I don't think any of that will affect the issue because the issue is power. And the folks that have the power now, Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump, and honestly, the re religious right, that is what they have been seeking. Um, so that's why I don't think this is really a contradiction or even a moment of hypocrisy. Yeah. And yeah, it, it's in, you know, I've heard some people saying, well, if, um, if we can, you know, if, if, if Democrats particularly can 
slow him down and make the, the confirmation battle, uh, you know, the vote happen after election day, maybe that'll change the outcome. But like, what incentive do you have at that point after you've lost the White House, or if that's the case, or after you lost the Senate potentially, if those were to, those things were to happen, I mean, I think you have more incentive to, to ram through this nomination. So, you know, it, it's just disturbing for me on so many levels because uh, particularly like the civics lesson you would get back in the day, like the Senate were, they were supposed to be like the grown-ups, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. All the yelling and screaming happened in the house and, you know, they're, they're going for their different uh, districts and so on. Uh, but these 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 statesmen, you know, mm-hmm. the 100, you know what I mean? They were looking out for the best interests of the country. And and it's just, that, that's my biggest concern is there, the, who is that person there now in government? The, and if you said that we did have one person that was doing that, the one person arguably, you could say was doing that, might have been, depending on your political uh, persuasion, John Robert. I want to talk a, a bit about Amy Barrett because I know we're both experts now in Amy Barrett, just like the rest of uh, humanity. So the first thing that I see, I see mainly, you know, most of the voices that I listen closely to are on the left. Um, but I've, I've seen this more from, from folks on the right that, oh, well, you're just upset because of her religion. You know, she's a Catholic. She is... It seems like she's a member of kind of a charismatic offshoot, um, which has kind of some, I don't know. I mean, I think if we wanted to critique the theology, we could, we could have fun with that at some point. But I don't think, to me, she's a Catholic. She's a charismatic Catholic. Okay. She has probably some theological points that I would disagree with. So just kind of going down the list. Duran, do you have any issues with her religious standpoints? I don't, but I do think, you know, going back to her confirmation in Feinstein, you know, there there was, you know, I think it is troubling some of the line of questioning about the dogma lives loudly within you and is there a religious test? So I do think that is a real issue. I do think um, there, there, there. Some people are put off by that. I, I do think there's enough, though, in her record for Democrats um, to to have issue with without going there. And so, I do think, though, that in each side is is not opposed to taking these these little pot shots. But uh, I think that that is a, a dangerous line and. I do think folks have a right to be concerned about that line of questioning. But if you, if you look at her at her track record on cases and she was a law professor, so she's written about, I mean, there's really no, no question about where she stands on issues. I think if you got, have an issue with Catholicism uh, and her being a Catholic, I think that's kind of absurd. You know, Dorothy Day was a Catholic. Sister Helen Prejean, who's a a fierce proponent for um, ending the death penalty. Um, she's a Catholic. I mean, there's there's all kinds of really great social justice that has always come out of Catholicism. So, um, you know, and whether there's some kind of hybrid theology there with 
kind of some um, charismatic Protestantism. Yeah, I think that's, I think that seems like a real angle that the Feinsteins of the world would, would take an attack that just is not substantive and just turns people off. Um, because yeah, like you said, there are um, more pressing matters than her own personal convictions, many of which I think I would probably agree with in, in many ways. So the biggest issue I think is uh, that's out there is abortion and Roe v. Wade. Joanne, I want to give you a chance to kind of weigh in on that if you'd like. She is she will probably be the the justice that will overturn Roe v. Wade. Well, I mean, I think that is. I mean, with this court the makeup, it, as soon as she makes it onto the court, I I, I mean, I, I definitely think it that's a real possibility that it could be overturned. I mean, I I think this is the moment that you know, many Republicans have been waiting for. It's a wedge issue that gets people elected. You know what I mean? And so if we really wanted to minimize and even make the the number of abortions extinct, I mean, we could, there's so many things that we can do. And if, even if we say we want to do it comprehensively and we also want to make it illegal, but there are also other things we could do to make abortion uh, um, you know, less common and more rare. And so, you know, again, it is a issue people use. And then, you know, on the left as well, you know, um, you know, some you know, people downplay the, you know, emotional and mental, you know, impacts of having abortion. It's kind of reminiscent of what we were talking about earlier. It's about power. It's about power. Can, can I control um, the electorate? I agree. It, it is all about power, really. And Joanna sent you earlier a an article from Nathan, Nathan J. Robinson, who's the founder and editor of Current Affairs magazine, and he did a really deep dive into Amy Barrett's history. At, at one point, I want to quote um, a paragraph he has that's titled um, "Against Workers, Debtors, and Consumers." So this is just a list of rulings that she has weighed in on behalf of the powerful against the powerless um, in her career. So it says, quote, Barrett has also ruled against workers attempting to launch class action suits over wage and hour violations, customers seeking to enforce a company's warranty after buying a disastrous malfunctioning lemon of an RV, a prospective candidate looking to reduce barriers to ballot access, a city employee trying to get his pension, a consumer pestered with text from AT&T in violation of the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, workers who haven't been t- paid for the full time they are on the clock, a woman whose IUD broke off inside her, possibly leading, leading her to need a hysterectomy, Grubhub drivers pushing a, for minimum wage and overtime pay, a debtor whose debt was not confirmed to be accurate by the debt collection agency, and parents whose hockey player's son was prescribed drugs by NHL doctors and then died of a drug overdose. So this long litany of cases that Amy Barrett has overseen in her um, past roles and current role are all favoring the very powerful. And so I think that is something that is overlooked in this conversation a lot is you have this wedge issue that drives people to vote really against their own interests 
And so the interest here would be to um, give people power to challenge the federal government, to challenge corporations, to, to challenge um, their employer when they're wrong. And she has consistently, time and again, showed that she will, will always rule in favor of the powerful. So I would like to see the Democrats oppose her on this level. It should be very disconcerting that this is a judge who consistently rules in favor of the powerful, particularly as we talk about um, this from a Christian theological perspective. Uh, you read the Old Testament prophets, they're consistently railing against judges that rule against the people and for the powerful. Um, I know, Duran, I will probably sound like a Marxist when I say that, but um, there is a, a real power differential here that Amy Barrett has shown time and again that she will rule um, against the people. What are your thoughts? Well, so, you know, let me just say, first off, is she qualified to be a Supreme Court justice? Sure. Yes, she's qualified. But I, I do think what you bring out really, the biggest concern for me, though, is the, the ideological tent, tilt of the court heavily in one way. And, you know, I think, too, in some ways, having lost Justice Ginsburg, you know, and then replacing her with, with, uh, with Amy Barrett, particularly you've lost this tradition that kind of you had with Thurgood Marshall and uh, with uh, RBG, people who have fought for those that are on the margins and who understands um, how, how people can be treated that, that don't have power with the law. You know, her, her stinging dissent um, in Lily Ledbetter's case um, that resulted in the Equal, Equal Pay Act, I, I think was huge. And, you know, so I think it's one thing to say uh, that you have these principles there. And so we're for fairness. Uh, but if you can't, if you can't enact fairness, uh, if you can't, if you can't, if your opinion or your ruling uh, doesn't really, you know, uh, make that or facilitate that, I mean, what, what's the point, really? And so, I mean, we and we've all have seen cases where it just it seems obvious, like what what the ruling should be, but based on some technicality. And so, I, I do think um, losing that tradition from Justice Ginsburg and, and not really seeing many folks on the court who can carry on that tradition, um, I think that's the the most concerning. Um, and and then too, you know, it's interesting too this. I sound like a hermeneutics class sometimes, you know, with this kind of originalist intent, authorial intent. And, you know, the, the idea almost that the Constitution has this kind of divine, infallible, inerrant status, which um, I, I think is, is very uncomfortable for me, you know, uh, because I, I don't see it uh, in that way as I would do the, the scriptures. And so I, I do think definitely we, we have to be careful of 
people just rewriting the law from the bench, but at the same time, you know, it should be applied in an actual situation uh, and not in these kind of hypothetical uh, removed situations um, that, that kind of govern uh, the lives of real people. That's well said, Duran. These are interesting times, my friend. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm glad we get to at least talk about it together. And I really do hope that, um, that our conversations lead the two of us and whoever is listening to, to really look for places where, where we can take action. And, you know, it's one thing, I think, to, to kind of stress out about, you know, not our side taking one of the seats that was our side. But when we really see these things that are, that are interwoven and, and interconnected, I think we just need to look for places that we can make our voice heard and join with those who are doing good work. So even to that um, point, next week, I'm really excited, uh, Dran, we are going to have a conversation with David Brazil from um, Abolition Apostles. So we'll hear about the good work they're doing with prisoners right now all across the South and all across uh, the nation um, and the good work they're doing to try to limit the buildings of new um, prisons. So um, I'm looking forward to that and hopefully we can get to some places of action. I think that'll be good stuff. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see how our democracy uh, evolves or changes based on this, this, this moment of time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Public Theologians. If you like what you heard, or even if you didn't but you felt like it was worth your time, we would greatly appreciate you sharing it with someone you know. We'd also love to hear from you, and if you feel so inclined, we'd gladly accept your support. Go in peace to love and serve.